Welcome to Raiders on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in authors and experts to help writers of all genres compose more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, the writing team behind the critically acclaimed Tier 1 series, Sons of Valor and Dark Intercept, Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson, are stepping into the interrogation room to try getting their stories straight. Brian Andrews is a U.S. Navy veteran, Park Leadership Fellow, and former submarine officer with a psychology degree from Vanderbilt and a master's in business from Cornell. Jeffrey Wilson has worked as an actor, firefighter, paramedic, jet pilot, and diving instructor, as well as a vascular and trauma surgeon. He served in the U.S. Navy for 14 years and made multiple deployments as a combat surgeon with an East Coast-based SEAL team. Their Tier 1 novels are already well-known and critically acclaimed by heavy hitters within the genre like Joshua Hood, John Land, and Mark Greeny, and the pair have now brought their writing talents to a new release entitled W.E.B. Griffin Rogue Asset. It's their first edition to help revive the late W.E.B. Griffin's New York Times bestselling Presidential Agent series, and it's the ninth installment in that series overall. Rogue Asset publishes nearly eight years after 2013's Hazardous Duty, which spent a month on the New York Times hardcover fiction list and peaked at number three. This latest installment sends a reconstituted presidential agent team on the tail of Islamic extremists after the United States Secretary of State is kidnapped. This latest release, Rogue Asset, launches on December 7th. Brian and Jeff, welcome to Writers on the Beat. I am so incredibly grateful for you guys making time and coming on this show. I know you're incredibly busy launching this new book today, and uh, to, to, to have made it onto the schedule is a, 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 a bit of an ego boost for me, so I'm glad you're here to make me feel better about me. <laughs> we're glad to be here gavin thanks for having us yeah thanks for having us uh, for uh readers who did not get uh, an advanced copy of of rogue asset uh brian what would you like them to know about this latest installment in web griffin's presidential agent series well first and foremost we're just honored and uh humbled to be able to carry on the legacy of the web griffin presidential agent series uh, there are eight books in the series, um, and Mr. Griffin passed away February 2019, and um, you know it was unclear whether the series would continue or not. And and uh, we were approached um, by Tom Colgan at Putnam uh, and asked if we'd be interested in carrying on that legacy. And uh, you know we were just floored uh, when the offer came, and it was such a incredible opportunity because. You know, Webb Griffin is, is somebody who that we read, you know, through our whole lives. Uh, you know, uh, he has 59 books, over 600 publications. I mean, he is a, an icon in this industry. Yeah. So for us to be able to, you know, accept that baton and carry on the mantle was uh, incredible. And for to that note, Jeff, I've had a, a number of authors come on the show who are continuing um, kind of <clears throat> historic um pinnacle series in, in this genre. And I, I wonder what it was like when you got that phone call or email that Tom Colgan wanted to talk to you guys, talk to you about putting your, your hat in the ring, throwing your name onto this. Yeah. So, I mean, like Brian said, it was exciting and flattering. We had the honor of you know, having dinner with him to discuss it. We had known him for a time and, and had talked a bit about doing something together. Weren't sure what he had in mind when we when we got together and when, when he made the offer to us, he said, we'd be, you'd be perfect for it. You're who I want. Is it okay for me to pitch you to the estate? It was like, 
it was like two emotions. One, Brian already hit on excited and flattered and honored. And then when it all worked out, it was terrifying because, you know, like, like you've both been saying, (laughs) this isn't the icon. You think of military thrillers, you can't think of anybody but Griffin, right? He's written the core series and like all of, all these series. And the idea that you have to somehow pay homage to that, to honor that in an appropriate way to write in Griffin's shadow was a little bit overwhelming uh, at first. Um, It was an honor and then it was overwhelming, but we credit Tom for, for helping us through that phase of it because he gave us the best advice. And we've talked to some other writers that write with Tom who, who received the same advice, uh, which was, look, you can't write Griffin. And at first you're like, well, then maybe you have the wrong people, right? He's like, no, 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 no. What I'm saying, you can't write Griffin. No one can write Griffin except Griffin. But you guys were chosen because you write this kind of story and you write with your own voice. So we, our advice to you is you write the best Andrews and Wilson novel that pays homage to the universe, that honors Charlie Castile and the characters and, you know, continues the story. But if you try to write like Griffin, you're going to fail. You need to write like you. And once he told us that, it was like, okay. We can do that. I think we can do that. So yeah. uh, then after that, once we had that conversation, I think it became fun again. And it was just a, it was a, I don't know, it was just a, a laugh riot to do it. Like it was so much fun to dig into these characters and bring in new characters and build these new relationships. We had a, we had a blast doing it for sure. Yeah. And I, I really think that Tom Cogan needs to be on every thriller writer's Christmas card list for having <laughs> been so heavily involved in helping a lot of these historic really important series stay alive. And the, uh, the advice that I, I know he gave to you know, Mark Cameron and Mike Madden, a lot of those guys, uh, just the same as, as you two, um, has really been to make sure that you're, you're not trying to replicate anything. And I think that would end up being a really difficult and, and really disingenuous thing to think, you know, what would, what would Webb Griffin do here? Or how would he say this? And I, I think another problem with that right is that over time uh, reader expectations uh, of the genre have changed obviously his writing evolved with that because he was writing so recently Um, but to try to replicate a lot of these historic authors you would almost use an old voice that's right and it's been eight years since uh, the last presidential agent book came out So a tremendous amount has changed geopolitically in the world. So uh, take a step away from just the voice and the writing style of those legacy authors versus how we write, Mm because you're right. Our writing style is very different, Um, but just geopolitically taking Charlie and trying to go back and say, okay, well, we're gonna write and we're gonna pretend it's seven years ago. Uh, you know, the readers are very savvy. They're, they stay up on top of things and they'll be like, hmm, you know, they're going to do that head, head check. And I don't know, this doesn't feel right. So, you know, we said we're going to age the character with the times. And it's also quite interesting, too, because, you know, how is Charlie going to fit into this geopolitical world? Does his style, does his swagger, does his tactics and methods still work or not? And um, so, you know, he's retired when we meet him in the beginning of this book and he's pulled back in. And uh, that was really, really fun for us to explore. You know, how is he going to approach the presidential agent program now that's been it's been shut down for a while and they're bringing it back and they're bringing him back. But 
the the president has a has a little twist that she's about to throw at Charlie when she brings him back. He 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 thinks he's coming in to be exactly the way it was before, but but that's not how it's going to work. Um, on that note, uh, Jeff, one of the things that I I like talking to writing teams about also uh, is how does this even work, right? Like I I work alone, like almost everyone else, um, and I'm a little egocentric and a little arrogant about how my creativity is the right way to do things. And how, how do you guys manage to keep this professional marriage so successful um, and also obviously so amicable? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I think that the key to that is, is our background and shared experience and something as, you know, with all your years in law enforcement and the special operations side of law enforcement, I think you'll appreciate this uh, more than most is that in the military, in you know, high-end special operations, law enforcement, team is everything, right? You have to, you can't function in that environment if you don't evolve into a method of being able to put the team and the mission ahead of your own wants and needs. And it, and it becomes second nature to you after a time in these communities. Yeah. And so both of us coming from uh, different military backgrounds, with backgrounds that share that ethos, you know, Brian in the submarine force, myself working with special warfare, that was just part of our DNA. And so when we set out to do this, we had frank conversations about how it would work. And, and one of the things we decided early on was, you know, this needs to be, you use the term marriage. It needs to be sort of like a marriage. Like um, in our house, I don't raise, you know, Jack and Ashley and Wendy's responsible for Emma and Connor, right? Like right. they're our kids and we raise them together and there's no ownership. And so we said very early on, that's what we need to do as co-authors. We need to both own every word, every sentence, every page of every work we do, and together focus on the mission, which is to create the best product possible. And to do that, um, require that mission and team before self. And um, we did it from the very first book and it's and have never looked back. And it's actually not been as difficult as you might think. Uh, our method is a little different than others. We write simultaneously and all these weird things. And um, so we don't really have time to focus on ego and ownership. That's for sure. Now, as you're talking about writing simultaneously, this image popped into my head of you guys both working in the same share drive and like typing over each other's senses. <laughs> I bet there. I bet there is a writing duo that does it somewhere. I mean, we heard on a panel about one other writing duo where they they get on the phone and one of them's typing, the other one's talking, and they're they're talking and typing throughout the whole day. That is not how we do it. We do get on the phone uh, many times a day, but it's more just to brainstorm and BS and and uh, have fun. And so that that's part of our process, I think, is you know the constant communication. But like Jeff said, we do write separately. And since you're a writer, you'll, you'll appreciate sort of these craft components, which is, you know, we write third person, multiple point of view um, thrillers. So we divide up the chapters uh, and the characters by point of view, and we assign those. So, you know, in part one, you know, Jeff might be writing chapters one, three, seven, 10, 12, and I take the other ones. And so what we sort of do is in the very beginning, we say, all right, what's our what if question? What's sort of the inciting event for this story? We get that all brainstormed out. And that's enough to get that boulder rolling. So we have some momentum. And then we start writing. And, uh, you know, Jeff maintains the master file. When I finish a chapter, I send it to him. He pastes it in. He sends me the updated master file as we go along. So we're reading each other's work as we go. Constant communication. So those chapters are evolving. And then um, we also sort of do our DEs as we go. So 
Jeff has free reign to change anything. Uh, if he doesn't like something that I wrote, he can say, I don't like this. I think we should do it this way and, and vice versa. And that reframing the process takes away the sort of turf guarding. I think you talked about that. I mean, when we both met, we had been writing individually. So there is a little bit of that. Well, I wrote this prose and now that it's there, it's perfect, you know? And um, we reframe, by reframing it to the end, it takes that away, it takes it away. So now we care that, oh, we want the book at the end to be the best damn book possible. But the only way we can get there is with some creative abrasion and communication and rewriting. We've really embraced this idea of rewriting. Uh, it's made us both better writers and it's made us as a team, very, very good writer. We like to joke that between the two of us, there's one good writer. <laughs> the, the readers agree, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, is uh, was uh, Brian was was talking about that? I I wondered then how how strictly do the two of you follow any outline or preconceived notions you have about where the book's going to go and how how tightly you adhere to that as as this process goes along? Yeah, so we we are more kinetic than than maybe some writers, um, or maybe disorganized would be. Uh, <laughs> but, so because both of us, when we write individually, are those kinetic writers that the story evolves, the characters inform you. I know that sounds goofy to non-writers, but the characters whisper in your ear, dude, I wouldn't do that. And that sort of thing is real, as you well know, Gavin, that happens. And so we didn't want to stifle that. And so we do not, you would think with two people writing simultaneously, there'd be like a good solid page and a half outline for every chapter. And it's just not the case. But the constant communication allows us to take that initial brainstorm of we're going to start here and end here within the entire novel or even just part one, two, or three, and allows us to just continue to be kinetic and, and creative and say, oh my gosh, I have a new idea. And you write that, but then you really better get on the phone and tell the other dude because you don't want him <laughs> right, right? So, so when he says we communicate a lot, when we're in the middle of, uh, of a new work, uh, which is all the time now, um, we talk anywhere from three or four to as many as eight or 10 times a day, especially in that last third. You know that momentum yeah. you build? That last yeah. third, you're writing like, man, if I could write this many pages in the first third, I could write a book every other month. But yeah. Um, yeah. we got to talk all the time then because things are just evolving and changing and you have a flash brainstorm and you write it and then say, dude, just so you know, here's what I did. Oh, I'm glad you told me. And, <laughs> and off we go. So it, it sounds chaotic. Um, but it's not. I, once you get into the groove of it, it, it does sort of work. Brian, as a reader, I really appreciate when an author is speaking from a place of experience. And I think that the, the authenticity and the detail that that brings to the pages really separates, the, uh, really improves that experience for me. And it's, in my own writing, it, it, it's a double-edged sword oftentimes that I'm getting to on the one hand, I get to kind of cheat the system because I'm writing about things that I've actually done or, or been a part of. But then I also get this kind of cathartic release um, of dealing with some of these things um, that I've also now had to unpackage sometimes from the back of the skeleton closet. Right. And I, I wonder how you deal with that process in deciding what to deal with, what to write about, what kind of fictionalized version to put out um, as, you're, as you're kind of going through some of these things yourself? So that's a great question. And I, I think I'd break it up into sort of the technical component and then the character component. So, you know, on the technical side, you know, when 
when people read Hunt for Red October for the first time, you know, uh, they were just floored, you know, oh, this is amazing. They felt like they were put on a submarine, you know, because they, the Navy allowed Tom Clancy to go on a submarine. And so in a very Clancy-esque way, you know, he went around, he interviewed the sonar operator and the torpedo man and the auxiliary man and the CO and the XO and the officer deck. And, you know, he, and then with excruciating detail, he explained how the Asvidu works and the, the sonar sphere and what the sonar shock is like and, you know, so much detail. And people ate that up. And then you have someone like me who served on a submarine. I lived on one for five years and lived and breathed and, and, and that was my life. And so, you know, for me to, uh, as a, if I'm representing a character now, that character is not going to walk into the con and be like, <clears throat> I'm on the con and there's the periscope and it's this type of periscope and it's 35 feet long. It's a penetrating type periscope with two sets of optics. You know, that's just not what you would do. You know, you walk up, you grab the ring you turn it, you know, it comes down, you know, you talk about the smells, you talk about what it's not, you're too tall for it. So you got to bend over and turn your back, you know? So I think, you know, this new generation of thriller writers, myself and Jeff included, along with Don Bentley and Josh Hood and, and the others, Ward Larson, we've got guys out there who've been there and done it. And so that authenticity comes through uh, with a less is more sort of approach, right? So you let the reader fill in the details by providing the sorts of things that you as an authentic operator or officer or service member would have thought about and felt and seen, right? The things you would have paid attention to and you give the readers credit for filling in the other gaps and say, oh, now there's Wikipedia. You know, when Clancy wrote, there wasn't Wikipedia, but now there's Wikipedia. You can pull up a type in 688 class summary and you can get a lot of information there. So we let the readers sort of do that. And then I think the other half is the character component. I'm going to kick the, uh, the question over mm -hmm. to Jeff now to answer this part, but this idea of, okay, well, on the character side, how do we pay homage to the men and women that we serve to and, and be authentic there? Yeah, and that's a huge responsibility, as you appreciate being in, you know, with your background, and you still got friends that are going to be pretty ticked off, right, if you, yeah. if you misrepresent them. And so we set out at the beginning saying, if we do nothing else, if, if we don't even sell books, let's be able to say we honored the men and women that we served with and we painted them as they are, the good, the bad, the ugly, the scars. Um, and part of that has been, as it turns out, has been part of our success is that when you paint a real character instead of those superhero characters that you see on TV and movies or written by people who maybe haven't done the work, um, it, it dilutes the character. It's interesting, it's very story driven and that's fun but you don't have an emotional connection. And so when you can develop characters that have warts and flaws and weaknesses and strengths, but they're on a hero's journey and they have an ethos that you admire, it resonates with readers both in and out of the community. And then the other thing is it allows you to develop very real relationships between your characters. Now, we're not writing Harlequin here, right? We're writing action thrillers, um, but I think that it is an element in thrillers that is often overlooked. You can add an amazing layer of depth by painting realistic characters and relationships and struggles and sense of loss and regret. You can paint that in there um, without bogging down your plot if you do the work and spend the time. And it starts with, with realistic characters. So I agree with Brian, like that's the best way to, to pay honor to, 
to the folks, uh, to the story is to give them real people that they're rooting on. And kind of on a, a related note, one of the other things that um, is a little bit difficult, um, I think, is trying to address modern reader experience with having so much information and so much out there on open source about capabilities um, and a lot of the technical aspects, while also trying to make sure we're not revealing anything that people are still using in terms of capabilities or assets or resources that they're still taking downrange. Um, and I wonder how you guys work, uh, Brian, I'll direct it to you, uh, to try to make sure that you're not accidentally putting something that's not open source out there. That's an excellent question. You know, we take an oath uh, to, you know, safeguard the tactics and methods and confidential information uh, when in both of our communities, both special warfare and submarine community take those things very, very seriously. So, you know, legally we're bound to protect operational security, but also morally, you know, we feel bound to do that as well, because there's nothing that we want to reveal that's going to put our brothers and sisters out there on the pointy tip of the spear right now in danger. So what we do, our, our thumb rule is uh, sort of a twofold. Uh, one is, you know, if it's open source, uh, then we feel like, okay, that's fair game. We can put that in there. And then the things that aren't open source, we fictionalize. And we fictionalize to a degree that we feel like um, isn't going to raise any eyebrows and, and make people say these guys don't know what they're talking about, but also is enough separation that, again, we, we honor that, you know, commitment to, to keep uh, those things uh, secure. And you were, you were saying before, Gavin, about how incredibly available the information is now. I will say one additional layer uh, that Brian is hinting at is even some of the stuff that's open source, we try to ask ourselves that moral ethical question, should that be open source? And if in our yeah. opinion, it shouldn't be, we still fictionalize it. So just because you can look it up on the internet doesn't necessarily mean it should find its way into the pages of our book because people know our background and it legitimizes it. And uh, you, know, you see stuff on the internet, you're like, maybe, maybe not. But um, we don't want to we don't want to legitimize anything that shouldn't be out there. So uh, we do take OPSEC very, very seriously in our books um, and, and always will. Like we still have friends out there like you. We got friends out there on the pointy tip and we would never do anything to put them in more harm. And going back to some of the, the, the original um, questions about this, uh, this series and this project, Jeff, in trying to make sure that you guys paid homage to Griffin and, and to these characters. How much how much research did you guys have to go back and do on Charlie Castillo and making sure that you got this character in this universe right? Yeah, so um, first of all, it helped that we were fans, right? So we had, we had read the series, uh, but I will say we both took the time to go back and go back through those first eight books because we wanted to make sure that we got things right. Now, one decision that we made um, for logistical reasons, but it did make our job easier was, like Brian was saying, we forwarded time. Um, we allowed the time lapse to be uh, the same in real life as it was in the book. And that it gave us the opportunity to be a little selective in which characters we brought forward. Uh, and the reason for that was technical. The reason, or you know, it's craft. If we had to reintroduce all of these characters with that eight year gap, you're going to have to give a little time to telling the backstory of who they were and how they got to be where they are now, 
you're turning a 400 page novel into a 700 page, very slow paced novel if you do that. And so we had to make the decision to, of course, Charlie's coming back, right? And we brought Natalie back and we make reference to some of the other characters, but that merry band of outlaws that he served with don't return in this book at least um, because it would have just been too oppressive to try to do it well. It also gave us the opportunity to put a little more Andrews and Wilson into it by yeah. bringing in this Marine Raider character in Pick McCoy and have those relationships and that sort of thing. So um, the research was just reading the books, really. Um, and then because we already loved it, that made it easy to bring Charlie back to life. Uh, who wants to take the works in progress question to talk about things coming up for you guys? We can even split it up, Brian. You go ahead. All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll split it up. So. Uh, behind me, well, this is this video is not, or this podcast is just audio, but behind me, for people that could see, is a copy of Dark Intercept, and that is the first book in our brand new Shepherd series from Tindo House. And um, this is a series that we're very excited about. We've already written the first three books, so um, they're going to come out pretty quick. So book one came out September this year, book two, Dark Angel, comes out in April and book three, Dark Fall, comes out October of next year. So uh, you're gonna be able to, this will be a very binge-worthy series. Uh, we have a military character, Jedediah Johnson, who is um, separating from the Navy. And he is a bit of a broken man. And he's in, I don't know, I would say emotional and state of emotional and, and, and personal purposelessness. He's crisis of faith. Uh, what, what am I doing here? What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life now that I'm getting out of the service? These are the types of questions that servicemen and women face when they, when they retire and finding purpose. And then also just sort of regrets. You know, I wish I would have done this better or that better. So this is different than some of our other series in the sense that, you know, this is what happens next in somebody's life after they, after they step away from their service. Of course, we're going to throw a big old adventure and, you know, stuff happens to him that he doesn't see coming. He's got to, he's got to rally and he's got to grow and he has a hero's journey that he has to go on. So that's, uh, that's what Tindo House and it's the first books out right now. We got uh, Sons of Valor is uh, the spinoff series to our tier one series. And the tier one is how Brian and I came to be. Uh, the first book we wrote together as Andrews and Wilson was tier one, the first book in that series, six books out there now. And um, there was this character that everybody loved him and his and his teammates named uh, Keith Redmond, Chunk Redmond, and he's a Navy SEAL who works with an East Coast SEAL team who would augment on a couple of the books for just a future. It's amazing how little chapter and page time the guy got for the response we got to him. Um, but he was in book two, and then he came back again in books four and five, and everybody loved him. So you know the premise of tier one is that the entire tier one SEAL team got wiped out from leaked intelligence and they start this special task force, et cetera. And the premise of the Sons of Valor is, look, if that happened, eventually they'd stand it back up. And so when Blackstone gave us the opportunity to do a spinoff series, we said, well, if we're gonna bring back the tier one, we'll put Chunk at the helm and we'll bring all his teammates back. And uh, the response has been phenomenal. So Sons of Valor came out last June, the first book, the second book in that series, Violence of Action comes out next June and you'll get to see more of Chunk and, and his boys. And the, the question we get asked all the time, where's tier one? Because we know it's been a long time. We're getting, so stop sending me emails. Um, 
it is is coming. It's coming. I promise. So we, um, we actually have moved that series. We signed a contract with Blackstone who does Sons of Valor uh, and they're going to be continuing on the tier one series. So book seven uh, is called Dempsey. It's definitely a pivot book in that series uh, as Dempsey continues his evolution into the, uh, into the person, the the covert operator that he's become. Um, And I think people are going to love it. So that one comes out uh, a year from now, next winter, uh, Dempsey will, will be available. And uh, we got some other stuff, but you don't have a lot of, we don't, we don't want to, <laughs> so. Brian, any, any other special announcements you want to make? Um, I mean, the, the big exciting one is that Dark Intercept was optioned for television is going to be developed into a streaming oh. series. So we're very excited about that. Yeah, congratulations. That's huge, right? Yeah. I mean, when you're writing this, you always picture it up on a movie screen in your mind anyway. So now it's uh, going to be headed there. That's fantastic, guys. Thanks. Yeah, we're excited. Okay. Just if, if if you haven't been to our website, www.anders-wilson.com, you could go there, sign up for our newsletter. We will not spam your inbox. Just, <laughs> you know, occasional updates on new releases. We do have some some merch, uh, you know, Anders and Wilson hoodies and hats and patches and stuff like that. So you can find that there. Also, just send us pictures. We have a fan photo wall. We'd love uh, posting pictures of people you know, who wear our hats or read our books or just, you know, showing their patriotic spirit. So. And the other thing about our website is um, it gives us the opportunity to showcase some of our fellow veteran partners in their businesses. That's something that over the last couple of years, Brian and I have become extremely passionate about giving a hand up and a lift up to our fellow veterans as they start their, their next stage of life. So you can find a lot of them on our website. So we encourage you to go there and, and look for those veteran partners that we work with. Uh, I, out of respect for everything else you guys are doing on launch day, um, I'll quit taking up your time here, but I am so incredibly grateful that you came on and spent some time sharing your expertise and thoughts about the craft and process of putting this together. And we're, uh, as readers, so incredibly grateful to you guys and Tom Colgan and the Griffin Estate for allowing you to continue this. So thank you both for doing this. Thanks for having us. And we'll come anytime, Gavin. This is very enjoyable interview. You do a great one. So yeah, great interview. We, we love talking to you. So thanks for having us. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Raiders on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. And this episode's guest has been the writing team, Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.